Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Our Young Writers Program seeks to nurture a love of writing and literature in students aged 10 to 18. We use exercises designed to fire the imagination, guided readings, and lessons on the craft of writing. Our workshops are held in schools, on-site, both after school and on the weekends, and every year we host a week-long summer writing camp. February 25, 2012 marked Lighthouse's first annual Youth Draft and Young Writers Program fundraiser. This year featured 12 young writers from 10 different Colorado schools. The presenters are, from Manuel High School, Irena Johnson, from Hill Campus of Arts and Sciences, Jackson Hootman, from Polaris at Ebert Elementary School, Christian Wilson, from Escuela de Guadalupe, Dexter Hilschmick, from the Girls Athletic Leadership School, Cassidy Cole, from Maury Middle School, Sunny Steerwood, from Thornton High School, Jalen Montoya and Daniel Roy, from the Children's Hospital Medical Day Treatment Center, Venetia Gregory, from Arupe Jesuit High School, Aero Marquez, from Denver School of the Arts, Eva Wenham, and finally, also from Thornton High School and a member of the Lighthouse Teen Council, Sam Opoku. My name is Mike Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, welcome to our humble little abode. Um, uh, I, I guess we need to go to downtown and raid another hotel for wedding chairs because we, we need some more um, with the gold fleck on them. I think they're really pretty. Maybe we should do that later. You guys want to do that? Who's got a pickup truck? Yeah, okay. Um, wow, it's, this is incredible. I, I can't believe we're such a wonderful crowd. Um, I, I'm very excited to see you all here. I'm a little nervous. I'm not sure why. Um, I'm sure you do. <laughs> you can tell me later. Um, thank you for coming. Um, and I, you're in for a really uh, great treat tonight. So, um, I'm, I'm going to get off the stage as quickly as possible. So um, welcome to the youth draft. Um, we call it the draft because students from uh, our outreach programs and our in-house programs were quote-unquote drafted, conscripted to come and read tonight. So some of them are probably doing it under a little bit of protest. Um, but afterward, they're all going to get the haircut. We got the, we got the buzz cuts. We're going to do that later. Did you guys know that? Did you kids know that? <laughs> No? That's what drafting means, right? It'll grow back by summer, I'm sure. Um, So they were chosen by their outreach instructors to read tonight. And um, what you're going to hear tonight is just a small sample of the incredible talent of the young writers um, at the Lighthouse program. Um, The entire Lighthouse community, you all should be very, very proud of the commitment and dedication and the talent of these young people. They're absolutely amazing. And, of course, you, uh, many of you are parents I'd like to congratulate you and thank you for making and raising such amazing kids. So good work. And if you've taken any notes over the years, um, I have a 10-year-old who just started the poetry workshop. So, you know, just, just pass them up to me. That would be great. So personally, these kids, uh, you young writers, you um, just fill me with such a tremendous sense of amazement. Um, and joy. I don't know why. I just feel joyful to hear your writing. Um, And hope. Um, Hope for the future, I think. Um, 
we all, since we're all here, we all know and we all believe in the value of creative writing. And to me, the value cannot be understated to our culture. Um, it embraces the idea that we are all human. And as uh, the writer, writer Richard Rhodes says, writing is a form of making and making humanizes the world. That's one of my favorite quotes. So um, these kids are amazing. And our youth program director, Meg Nix, is equally amazing. <laughs> uh, like the young writer, she's incredibly poised. Um, I wish I could be so poised. You know? Don't you think? Yeah. Just sort of like the imaginary books on her head. She just walks through any, any kind of problem. Um, she's incredibly talented and wise beyond her years. Um, she's an incredibly hard worker, and I find her an inspiring person, and I'm so glad she's running the youth program. So let's give her a hand. And now I'm going to turn it over to her, and she's going to introduce the first instructor who will introduce the first reader. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. This is so cool to see everybody in one room supporting the Young Writers. Can you guys hear me if I don't hold this? It feels too, like, stand-up-y for me. Um, so I, I have to toot a couple horns before the writers start um, their reading. And, and the first horn is just Lighthouse itself. Um, I recently read a quote by, does anybody know who Archimedes is, Young Writers? What do you know about Archimedes? <laughs> That is amazing. Because <laughs> I knew Archimedes as the owl from Sword in the Stone till like, <laughs> till like this afternoon. But you are absolutely right. Yeah, he was a mathematician, <laughs> and he was Greek, and he, um, he said this brilliant thing that, um, that I think really applies to what Lighthouse does, and that's that... We are all looking for a lever and a place to stand to tilt the world the tiniest bit. Um, and I, I know for a lot of people in this room, the lever itself is writing. Um, it's how we take something big that happened and we use our, our own force to make that huge thing move just by the power of little words. Um, but the thing with the lever, um, which Archimedes knew, is that you need a foundation for it. You need a place for it to stand. And I... I know that Lighthouse has been that for me personally, um, and I know that it's that in our programs um, for young writers who are doing those tiltings of the world. Um, we started a program last year at Children's Hospital uh, that Christy Bailey took over this year. Christy's back there. Yay, Christy. Um, and unfortunately, our reader from Children's could not be here tonight. Um, but this thing happened um, at Children's. We, we printed all these anthologies at the end of our class, and we gave them to the kids, um, hoping they were finished. And after we handed them out, we realized that we had to recollect them and make some changes um, for, like, uh, confidentiality. And one of the young writers in the class, she wouldn't let go of it. She, I, and I, we felt so bad. And I was a little scared because I was like... If we don't get that back, we're going to get in big trouble. We're going to have to, like, wrench it from her hands. And she was, like, just huddled over her desk, like, gripping it. And she said, um, 
She said, you don't even know what my day was like. You can't take this from me. Um, and, and I think that every writer in here, and, and especially Samika was that writer, um, she's proof that Archimedes is right, that we need that lever to move the world and that we need that place to stand. And I think part of that place is the page where, where the words can stand. Um, so currently, if you don't know that much about Lighthouse, um, we have programs in 20 schools, um, and those are listed in the back of the program that you're holding. Um, and this year, we'll, we'll have reached over 1,000 students by the end of the year. Um, so tonight, as Mike said, we have uh, writers from a lot of our outreach programs and our in-house programs. We have after-school and weekend workshops. And the kids in these programs are just amazing. Tiffany Tyson, who's also uh, one of the teachers in the youth program, said to me, that one of her fifth graders wrote something more beautiful than she thinks she's <laughs> she'll be able to write in her whole life. And I feel like that every day working with the young writers. Um, take Archimedes as an example. They just know so much. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of instructors, I just wanted every instructor who has taught a class, um, a young writer's class at Lighthouse to stand up so that we can honor the work that you've done. Um, these are just dedicated, brave, and really talented people, and it's an honor to learn from all of you every day. Um, and finally, young writers, um, even if you're not reading tonight, please stand so that we can applaud you, because that's what we're here for. Um, a couple quick logistical things. If you do need to use the bathroom, it's just in that back corner. Um, and one thing I like to do um, if young writers, or if any writers are reading, if you see a writer in trouble who's just, like, some of the writers tonight are reading personal things, and they might, na- they might need to take a minute to just breathe, um, just snap so they know that we're with them and that they're not just surviving the silence alone. And feel free to applaud afterwards. Um, so... Without further ado, I will introduce the first young writer. Um, this first reader is from Manual High School. Uh, we, we run a program there throughout the school year, actually. And the kids who, um, who are in that program commit to four hours of after-school writing a week. They're, they're at the school from 3 to 5 on Tuesdays and Thursdays, not to mention all the time that they spend interviewing and putting their stories together for, um, it's for a community magazine called Boom that's distributed in five points. Um, And the first class um, that I taught there this year, there was a new student there, and she was just totally poised, sitting straight up, pen in hand, and all the other kids were like reaching for brownies and juice, and like there's like music blasting from one corner, and she's just ready, waiting. Um, and, and she is poised, and she's so compassionate with the other students in the group. And she's a fabulous poet, and you will never forget how to pronounce her name after tonight, Irena Johnson. Hello, my name is Irena Johnson, and my piece is called A Gift I Would Never Return. 
Irena. Without in, without the E in front, Irena Reina means queen in Spanish. Dripping in royal colors of scarlet, purple, and gold. A crown placed a crown made with grass green emeralds and deep water blue sapphires placed with a feather touch upon the head of royalty. Queen Reina. But with the E it means nothing. It becomes stripped of its royalty. A name my mom heard long before she had me. It belonged to a little girl in her neighborhood that she knew. Reina is a name that was hidden in the heart of a woman who didn't know if she would have children. A name that is unique but simple and sometimes sounds foreign to me when I say it, as if it is not really mine. A name that is the stillness of a fall Sunday evening, calm, controlled like a sturdy house in a flurry of wind. A name of quietness, Irena, projected as shy and slightly standoffish or self-conscious, with soft smiles and a loner's vibe around new people. But when around friends, I blossom. I am the blossom of spring after a rainfall, and my laughter and geeky quirks emerge. Loudness and childishness, country accents and slang, talkativeness and friendly jabs aimed at the people that are close to my heart. Bold and strong, I have a tendency to worry about situations, but can be resourceful at the right time. Resistant to change, but still open to new ideas. These are some of my traits. E-Reina. I hear each syllable. I hear each syllable butchered by a friend in the hallway. And when I was younger, Urania, 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 it be- it became exhausting having to correct them, having to correct them so many times when it seemed so simple to me. For all the for all the mispronunciations, Urania is my name, the name of the firstborn and only child from my mother. Listening to the buttery smooth way my mother says it when she's proud of me is a gift I would never return or exchange. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, My name is Betsy Sweeney, and I taught a group of mostly 8th graders, a couple of 7th graders, over at Hill Campus of Arts and Sciences. And our reader tonight is uh, Jackson Hoopman, and he was my student in a six-week creative writing immersion class in which we covered a lot of different genres. He is headed to the IB program at GW, and he divides his time between school and the basketball court. And um, after watching him in class being... Uh, very quiet and um, really not drawing a lot of attention to himself. I really imagine that his moves in each of his basketball games are as carefully thought out as his word choices and his characterization. Uh, So, Jackson Hoopman. Hi, I'm Jackson Hootman, and this first poem, well, Miss Sweeney gave us pictures that we had to base our writing off of, and my picture was of a of a forgotten hotel in a, I guess, in a ghost town, you could say. So this poem is called The Arrow Hotel. The lonely forgotten air weeps a mournful song as it glides against the rusty wood and slices through the trees. The Arrow Hotel rejects the sad tune with its closed doors and fastened windows, creating an abrupt cry from the Arrow Hotel, a cry for one brave human to prove the building's worth. With great sadness, no one is to be seen, 
No one to wake the arrow hotel of its slumber. No one to alter the wind's mood. But the forgotten hotel still stands, welcoming any living soul who is willing to come inside and enjoy themselves. Thank you. And this second poem is called Live for Greatness. The greatness of a being is an epic measurement of remembrance. Your greatest moments are what keep you locked on the minds of others. So you might as well just do it. Leave the distinguished trails of your greatness on everything you encounter. It is your time to leave your mark, a mark of your unique power. Ask yourself, what do you want this world to portray of you when you can no longer make any excuses? Make it something, that, make it something to be proud of. Make it something that can change the world. It may be just a minuscule dent on our overgrown society, but even a minuscule dent can make a difference. Thank you. Hi, I'm Amanda, and the young writer I'm about to introduce is just an amazing kid, and I'm really excited to be here introducing him. Um, William Faulkner said that the number one thing a writer needs is not talent, but curiosity, and this young writer has both. He consistently impresses me with his curiosity, even if it's questioning the exercise that I gave him, or, <laughs> or wondering why this particular reading I gave him, or asking some question that's not related, and leading the class off on some wonderful escapade into a new topic. <laughs> Um, in his writing, he also has that spirit of inquiry. He experiments with the poet's tools of rhythm and repetition. He pursues his characters into unexpected places. He writes with such energy and color that you're drawn completely into the world that he's created. His writing is at once playful and dark, fast-paced and well-crafted, and it's been a pleasure to work with him at summer camp and during the four-week novel workshop. Please welcome Christian Wilson. My piece is called The Monster from Pendragon Labs. It grew in the black mud. It grew in the green toxic chemicals. It grew in the red blood of the murdered scientists. It grew in the gray shadows of the tall trees. It grew in the silver shards that were once Pendragon Labs. It grew in the blue fog. It grew and grew and grew. And it became a monster. The monster from Pendragon Labs. The bus was like any ordinary bus that any ordinary family would rent from any ordinary car rental when they were going on any ordinary road trip. But this ordinary bus with an ordinary family that rented it from an ordinary car rental was not in for anything ordinary was not in for anything ordinary at all. It was the first victim of the monster from Pendragon Labs. Um Paula Olivia Carlson was the oldest of the eight Carlson siblings. She was about to the end of her patience with her brothers and sisters. Ah! She She screamed as they reached their 1,856th verse of a million bottles of beer on the wall. 998,144 bottles of beer on the Paul Paul, Georgie, Georgia, James, Jamie, Henry, and Henrietta Carlson mumbled. 
What do you want? asked little Henrietta. Just stop singing, you good-for-nothing pest. It feels like my ears are about to bleed, Paula roared. Fine, Georgie snarled. There was a long, eerie silence. It was broken when the bus shuddered violently and came to an erupt halt. Jesus, Carl Carlson mumbled from the front seat. Dad, what was that? Jamie asked. Do you think it might be a, 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 a purple alpaca? <laughs> Shut up, Jamie, Paul said. <laughs> Shut up, Jamie, Paul said, getting up from his seat. Dad, what was that? The mother, Carlene Carlson, sighed. I don't know, bud, Carl answered. Paul sat down. The bus shook, sending the littlest children into the aisle. The back window shattered. An ugly, slimy, smelly creature pulled itself onto the bus. Everyone screamed. Its face was that of a wolf with no eyes. It had the ears of a bat. Its long, yellow fingernails were as sharp as daggers. Its long, bulky tail was decorated with jagged spikes. Its snout flew open, revealing three rows of sharp, white teeth. Its long, muscular legs ended in cloven hooves. Every inch of its ugly body was covered in matted, jet-black hair. It grabbed James. Oh, my God! Holy crap! Someone help me! Ah! (laughs) James yelled. Let go of my son, Carl bellowed and charged at the monster. The creature flung James into the wall of the bus. The beast tore into Carl's stomach and ripped out his internal organs. (laughs) Carl had no time to register the pain before he died. Dad! Powell lurched towards the monster from Pendragon Labs. The creature responded by sending an almost careless kick to her head. As the pain flew through her head, Paula's mind wandered to an almost forgotten moment at her grandparents' house a long time ago. <laughs> the sky was clear of any clouds. The apple tree's fruit were bright red. An apple fell from the branch high up in the clutter of sticks and twigs. The crimson morsel plummeted onto the crisp green grass. A few splinters of wood rained down after it. A small white cloud appeared on the blue slate of the sky. A twig fell to the ground. The shattered end of the branch stood out against the large apple tree, light green on dark brown. The rest of the branch was under her. Pain throbbed through her small body. A large inhuman roar echoed through the memory. Paula was snapped back to the present. She was in a bus, the seats, the aisle. It must be a school bus, but it was night and the only people were strangers, except for her parents. Her mother was cowering in the seats, and her, mother, and her father was on the floor. He was red, no, not red, covered in something red, blood. The taste of blood materialized in your mouth. Her head throbbed. She stepped to her ear and felt a large amount of blood clinging to her black hair. She looked at her reflection in the polished bus floor. It wasn't what she was expecting, a round, pale, babyish face with a tiny nose that looked as if it had been wedged between two chubby cheeks. Instead, what she saw when she looked at her reflection was someone she had never seen before. She saw a teenage girl instead of that four-year-old she was used to. The strange girl was tall and thin as if someone grabbed her by each end and stretched her like silly putty. A long white scar that she didn't remember getting sliced down from her rat nest of dark hair to her small chin that seemed to end her head too early. But one thing was the same. 
the eyes of the strange girl on the floor and the face of the little girl she knew. The same pools of dark blue water on a milky saucer lay in the middle of both of their heads. Paola turned away from her floor and saw it. She didn't know what it was. It was just it, and it was looming right over her. Paola gave out an expectant shriek. She scampered to the back of the bus. The monster ran towards her, its giant tail swinging to and fro. It snarled. It swung its arm with talon-like nails at the terrified girl's face. Paul jumped onto the monster's back. The gigantic monster stopped. It snarled viciously. It reached backwards and tried to rip Paul from its neck. The monster ran backwards, sandwiching Paul between the metal wall and the hairy monster. Paul cried out in pain. He released his grip from the monster. The monster took a few steps forward. Paul dropped to the floor. He groaned. Pain roared through his body. His head throbbed. His lungs ached. Georgie helped him up and brought him through the door. He slumped to the ground. Paul lay in the cool grass, his blonde hair reflecting the moonlight eerily. His tan limbs sprawled across the green lawn. He saw his siblings, Jamie and Georgie, pull Paul out of the bus. Henrietta skipped along beside them. Georgie turned to go back to the bus. The bus exploded. Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, I am not an instructor with Lighthouse. I'm actually a teacher at the school where the student and writer that we'll read next attends. Um, she goes to the school called Escuela de Guadalupe up in the Highlands. And Dexter has always been, even since kindergarten, the smart student in the class. She was had acted out the brain in the, the human body performance that they did. Um, but above and beyond that, Dexter is one of the most thoughtful and compassionate people that I have ever met in my life. And an example of that was I was in the lunchroom with her one day and she had a food that I really liked and I told her I really liked it. And the next morning I walked into my classroom and right there on my desk was a whole box of this wonderful thing that I enjoyed. And I knew it was from her. She didn't write that it was from her. She didn't have to brag about it or tell me. I just knew. And Dexter is that way with her teachers. She's that way with her friends. Um, And she's that way in both languages, so I'm going to switch to Spanish. Um, Dexter siempre ha sido un líder compasivo en nuestra escuela. Y... Para todos los niños, desde chiquito hasta grande, ella es un buen ejemplo. Y ha sido un placer de, para ser una maestra para Dexter, pero más que todo para aprender de Dexter. Disfruten su lectura. Hello, my name is Dexter, and I will be reading a memoir in both Spanish and English. Please enjoy. The Museum. I remember that when I was four years old, I loved big, scary, ferocious dinosaurs. I demonstrated my intense interest to my parents by asking them again and again if I could see a real dinosaur. One day, my nice parents decided to take me to my first museum. 
It was called the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. My parents told me I would be able to see real dinosaurs there. I never imagined they would be skinny and dry skeletons. <laughs> when I got to the museum, an employee was dressed in a dinosaur skeleton. I was very young, and obviously, I got really scared. I wanted to touch the skeleton, but I couldn't move a single step till my dad carried me up to the employee. This is all I remember of my exciting adventure. Since that day, I have visited the museum many times. I still love dinosaurs, but I'm not afraid of their skeletons anymore. There's a new exhibit, though, and it, the bones have been replaced by robots. Now I'm a little scared of those robots. Thank goodness they won't eat me. What I've learned through my visits at the museum is that I'll always be scared of something one way or the other. Now I will read the same piece you just heard, but in Spanish. El Museo. Me recuerdo que a los cuatro años me encantaban los dinosaurios grandes, robustos y feroces. Yo demostraba mi intenso interés a mis padres por preguntarles una y otra vez si podía ver un dinosaurio verdadero. Un día mis, ama mis padres amables decidieron llevarme a mi primer museo. Se llamaba el Museo de the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Me dijeron que allí podía ver dinosaurios de verdad. Nunca me imaginaba que eran esqueletos flacos y secos. Al llegar al museo, hubo un empleado vestido de un esqueleto falso de dinosaurio. Yo era muy pequeña y obviamente me asusté muchísimo. Quería ir a tocar el disfraz, pero no pude tomar ni un paso pequeño hasta que mi papá me cargó hasta el hombre. Esto es todo lo que me recuerdo de mi memoria emocionante. Desde ese día, he visitado el museo varias veces. Todavía me encantan los dinosaurios, pero ya no tengo miedo de sus esqueletos. Aún así, hay una nueva exhibición, y en lugar de huesos de dinosaurios, tienen robots. Ahora tengo miedo de los robots. Gracias a Dios no me van a comer... Lo que he aprendido de mis visitas al museo es que siempre tienen miedo de algo, de una manera u otra. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kara Lopez Lee, and um, I want to confess to you, I still get a little embarrassed when I cry in front of my students. Uh, and every week of our brief workshop together, this next writer did her best to embarrass me. Cassidy would paint these profound, heart-aching images and emotions with very lyrical language, and tears would just spring to my eyes. Sometimes it took me a moment to remember to keep instructing because I couldn't figure out how to get another word out after being so moved. Um, I also witnessed uh, Cassidy's process, which um, I don't always get to do with writers. And her process is different from mine, and it left me a little bit awed. She carefully considers what she wants to convey and seems to sort of stare into herself until you might think she's gone into this deep meditation. And then she reproduce, reproduces the results on the page, weighing every word until she has created a multifaceted gem from the depths of her soul. Talk about courage. 
Uh, Cassidy has a gift for connecting emotion to image and linking experience to meaning. In the story she's about to read for you, she hasn't just thrown in a metaphor or two for effect. The entire piece is a metaphor, yet one with a clear story at its heart. She shares a personal experience of loss and does so with such deep honesty that it gives us a place to connect with the grief in our own lives. Her writing reminds me of the power of stories to help both writer and reader find a path to healing. I'm very proud to introduce Cassidy Cole and her nonfiction short story, Heart Waves. Okay. Heart Waves. The things you learn about the ocean are not the things about the salty water. Yes, there are little fishes and the big and cunning sharks within that saltiness. Tell me this. Is the ocean always what's above the surface? Is there a catalyst to the ocean's yank? What if the ocean waves became still? Sorry. Is there, is there a catalyst to the ocean's yank, revealing its inner self, thwarting you from breathing? What if the ocean waves became still? Say those waves were your immediate passageway to freedom, and that was taken away from you. Your freedom would have disappeared, and you would no longer believe the ocean was your remedy. Imagine this. Your eyes are like radar where you can see love in its conspicuous form. You look at the ocean, seeing the earth curve over like it does on the globe. How much love do you think you would see? You would see the broken hearts, the glory of being away, the failure to succeed. My belief in love seems to be slipping through my hands like like. Little by little, like sand sprinkling through my webbed hammock. My grandmother and my father told me I was a terrible daughter and babbled on about why. I tuned out. My family told me I was terrible? I've never felt so lost. I might as well walk the opposite direction down the shore, somewhere other than where the father that betrayed me was headed. I wish I could erase that day, the day the windchill could have frozen the wave, that broke me, leaving me cold and vulnerable without a shield to block the tears. My father now lives in what I call Neverland. It feels so far away, yet it's closer than I think. Now I don't have one bed. I have two, mine and the other one. I guess you could call it some cold, obviously fake impersonator, trying to be something that could never be, my bed. It's done, though I wish I could be finding Nemo, only not looking to be found. My feet are salty and are coated with coarse sand. I'm getting the illusion that the imprints of my feet are getting smaller, maybe because my sense of belonging is disintegrating, taking my existence along with it. The day they they told me about the separation, I have never grasped onto my mother so tightly before when tears weren't rolling down my cheek. Why don't you come give your father a hug, he said. Once again, that dissonance appeared in my mind. God forbid I hug him. He would be cold plastic in my hands. He would be that Barbie in my arms. I won't. I won't hug him. I wish I could be the girl with the stereotypical family, without a divorce. The waves are like love. They go up as if they were aiming to tower over a skyscraper, then down again, like the side of the earth seems to do when you're on top of Mount Everest. Then it frequently hits the shore, and bam, it's no longer real. But when this love leads to marriage, the monotonous waves can hit the shore violently, always yanking someone out to sea, drowning them in the slightest, slightest bit of despair in the answer to an indecisive question. Am I lost, or am I, or am I exploring? I'm lost, not exploring. 
That feeling of waking up in a strange place, not knowing where you are and where you've been, is lingering in my mind. Am I in my bed? Am I in the imposter? Am I okay? I am okay. I am at the place where hearts collapse and freedom is made. Of course I'm okay. I'm here. My home. The ocean. I, I love doing this. <laughs> I met our next writer during a workshop at Maury Middle School. We had several talented writers, so her being here uh, tonight is no small achievement. Uh, let me confess again, um, I almost missed what was right in front of me. This young writer was neither insistent about displaying her talents, nor shy, uh, so shy that I felt compelled to draw her out. She simply showed up every week with the attitude suggested by her name, Sunny. Friendly, attentive, consistent. She just kept plugging away the way good writers do. Then on our last day when she read her story, she blew us all away. The kids were full of questions about how she did it. The story Sunny is about to read shows a knack for humor, dialogue, and structure. She has a natural understanding that a story's framework is just as important as the writing. Her story hops back and forth between the viewpoints of two very different girls with an unusual connection. This structure helped her to heighten the hilarious conflict. As she wrote the ending, I had a peek at her writer's process, too. She has this uncanny ability to cut to the heart of the question and instantly write several ways to answer it. Then she has the courage to just cut without looking back. Her instincts are sharp, as you will hear. I'm proud to present Sunny Steerwood and her short story, Twin. Um, I'm Sunny Steerwood, and this is my short story, Twin. Sasha, yeah, I shout along to the punk rock music blaring from inside my iPod, banging my head and flinging my red-dyed hair all over my face. You know my sister Emily takes out her green earplugs. Every time you do that, you lose four brain cells. Do what, I say, banging my head viciously to a particularly angry part. That, she rips the headphones out of my ears. Every time you headbang, you lose four brain cells. Whatever. I shove the headphones back into my ears and start banging my head to the music again. Emily rolls her eyes and then goes back to reading her book. You might think that it would be hard for poor Emily to concentrate on peacefully reading a book while her conjoined twin sister headbangs to a punk rock song, but we often find ourselves in situations like these, and she has long since gotten used to it. Yeah, that's right, I said conjoined twin. Emily and I were born connected at the shoulder and under our waists, a connection so big the doctor couldn't operate to pull us apart. Usually, it's not too bad being connected to my twin sister, but there are some inconveniences, like that we can't sign up for sports because, together because we are so darn clumsy, or that neither of us will probably have any romantic moments with a boy because the other one will be staring off into space awkwardly. <laughs> oh, and, then, and there's also the fact that neither of us has any privacy at all, like in the bathroom, for example, or sleeping. We were born stuck together, and we will always be together forever. Sasha, can you tell me the answer to question 22? Mrs. Ackerman gave me a hawk-like glare from under her rounded glasses. I had my phone under my desk and was busy texting my best friend Tyler. Um, what page, I asked. Miss Ackerman scowled. Try page pay attention. <laughs> Emily, what's the answer to question 22? 223 and one-fourth, Emily said proudly. I scowled. 
teacher's pet, I mouthed at her. As we were walking out of class, Miss Ackerman walked up to Emily and me and looked us square in the face. I'll take that, she said. Take what? I asked sweetly. Your phone, she snapped. I can tell when a student is texting during class. I'm not stupid. I wrenched the phone out of my pocket and slammed it into Miss Ackerman's bony hand. I practically pulled Emily out into the hallway. You've got an attitude problem, young lady, called Miss Ackerman. Detention every day next week. And don't be late. Nice going, said Emily as we walked into the cool outside air. Now you've dragged me to detention. I'm going to miss math club next week. Oh, boo-hoo, I said. You'll still be going to your math club, but you have detention, said Captain Obvious. Duh, but I'm not going. I can, I, now I could feel Emily getting mad. Listen, if you skip detention, you'll get suspended. If you get suspended, I get suspended. And if I get suspended, I'll fall behind. I'd appreciate it if you considered my needs instead of being a selfish brat. Anger, sur- anger surged up in me. You'll fall behind? What about me? You get straight A's in everything. I get straight D's. I would appreciate if you understood my life and got your facts straight. You won't fall behind in anything. My plan was to pretend I didn't hear her. Yeah, well, she might not buy it. And Mom will find out you got suspended and blame it on me for not stopping you. So please just don't get into any more trouble than you already are. It's all about you, 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 isn't it? I have to be dragged along to all your stupid activities. I'm in advanced math, even though I'm struggling. All because the regular program wasn't good enough for you. You could think about me for a change, but no. It's all Emily, Emily, Emily. Emily. I knew what would happen next. It always did. Competition. In art, Sasha made a a masterpiece self-portrait. In language arts, her summary was worthy of a Nobel Prize. In music, she sang louder than anyone. I never bothered to tell her what she was doing. I figured it was good for her. She was still giving me the cold shoulder, which was surprising because she usually never managed to do it for over 30 minutes. Every time I tried to talk to her, she'd just ignore me and talk to someone or pull out her iPod and listen to music. I thought it was a little ridiculous because you can't avoid someone who's attached to you from your shoulder to your hip. Finally, I said, it's been a week. Maybe we should just move on and be the sisters we used to be. Sasha replied by taking out her book and pretending to read. I rolled my eyes and started flipping through the tattered pages of my own textbook. The end of school bell rang shrill and loud. Sasha and I stumbled through the mobs of eager students and clumsily stepped out into the fall air. My best friend, Ashley, ran up to me. Hey, Emily, do you want to come over today? She asked. My parents aren't home yet, so we can do stuff my parents probably wouldn't let us do otherwise. Maybe we could even have a party. Sorry, Emily can't go, Sasha cut in rudely. I'm going over to Andrew's house today. Oh, well, okay. Ashley walked home disappointed. So, where's Andrew, I asked. Oh, I don't know. He's got soccer practice today, actually, I think. I folded my arms. So you told Ashley you were going over to Andrew's just so you could make me not hang out with my friend? I'm telling Mom. Okay, she'll ground you. Fine, if she grounds me, she grounds you too. I groaned. This was the bad thing about having a conjoined twin. If she got in trouble, you got in trouble too. That's how Sasha gets away with bullying slash annoying me 24-7. Sasha, hey, what's your problem? I said to my fuming sister, even though I knew what. We were in the kitchen, eating fresh brownies my mom had just made. Well, at least Emily was. I was trying, but only able to snag one, before she took the rest and jammed them all into her mouth at once. (laughs) Oh, nothing, Emily simpered. Just trying to make sure you don't steal the brownies. So I'm stealing the brownies, I said. Come on, you're just mad because I ruined your chances of having a party with your friend. I was only trying to help. 
I'm not stupid, Sasha. I knew you were only doing that to bully me. Emily glared at me. At least she was now making eye contact. But bullying is such a hard word, a harsh word, I said, pouting. I knew I was provoking her, but sometimes I just couldn't help it. No, it's just realistic, because that's exactly what you did. At the last word, she picked up her lemonade glass and threw the contents right into my face. My eyes, I sputtered, they burn. Emily, I, p- I put my hands over my eyes and pushed on my eyeballs. I blinked and opened my eyes. Blurly, blurly, I looked at Emily, and she was smiling. You little freak, right when I made up with you. After that was a long string of curse words. I was so into this rant that I didn't hear the car pull up into the driveway or the clicking sounds of a door opening or my mom standing in the hall appalled until she yelled, Sasha! Oops. But she threw her lemonade at me and stole all the brownies, I tried to explain. Right after you chased my friend away just because you wanted to bully me, Emily screamed. Girls! Emily, no books for a week. Sasha, I'm going to take away your iPod for a month. That is so not fair. I dragged Emily up to my room and locked the door. (laughs) Emily. Oh, guess what I got today? Sasha excitedly told our parents the next evening at dinner, digging a manila envelope out of her denim tote bag. A detention slip? I said eagerly. My parents glared back at me. Sorry. No, Sasha rolled her eyes. My report card. I was confused. Sasha had never been excited about her report card before, unless... Sasha handed over the envelope to my parents, who tore it open like hungry lions. Read. Mom and Dad guessed. A, A plus, A minus, B. Sasha, this is amazing. We need to celebrate. Well, Sasha pretended to think, what would really be nice would be a new iPhone. But I can understand if it's too much to ask. She smiled sweetly. But you are proud of my grades, right? Of course we are, my mom said. We'll go to the Apple store on Saturday. My report card was better than Sasha's, but she's getting an iPhone, I mumbled. You stop that right now or your books will be taken away for another month. Mom's voice took me by surprise, and I raised my eyebrows. Okay, fine. What did I even do? These are the best grades Sasha has ever gotten. Do not try to bring her down, Dad added in. Sasha tried to act offended. Yeah, Emily, she said softly. Stop acting, I said, glaring. I'm not acting, Sasha screamed. Every year we get report cards, and every year it's the same. Mom and Dad read my report card and get all disappointed, and then they see yours, and immediately they smile, and you get something cool. Just once I wanted to be recognized by my parents, and you have to take that away from me, too. She pulled me into the kitchen and slammed her plate in the dishwasher. May I be excused? Our shocked parents nodded. What else could they say? The child is laughing, laughing enters my mind as I fall into a fitful sleep that night. An image accompanies it, and I realize it's the old picture that hangs on our kin- kitchen wall of five-year-old Sasha and me smiling as we played in the sandbox at kindergarten, playfully pouring sand on our heads. The photo zooms in and comes to life, except now Sasha and I are frowning like we're disappointed in something. Then I realize it's the teenage us they're disappointed in. The young Sasha turns to me and says, We want the old Sasha and Emily back. I wake up with a start. Usually, Sasha and I have different dreams at night. When I have a nightmare, I sit up suddenly and pull Sasha up with me, Sasha grumbling at me for waking her up. But this time, Sasha is breathing just as heavily as me, her eyes wide. What happened? I asked. I just had the craziest dream, Sasha starts. Wait a minute. Did it include an old photo of us that came back to life? And you were talking about how we wanted the old Sasha and Emily back? I asked. Yeah, except instead of me saying we wanted our old selves back, it was you. Sasha, I whisper, I think we just had psychic dreams. Sasha looks into my hazel eyes, and I look back into her identical ones. I'm sure she see, I see the same expression on mine. 
fear. I glance in the big mirror facing our bed. Yep, there's that look of fear. Then I realize it's not fear staring back at me. It's longing. Longing for us to be friendly, not hostile towards each other. Longing to be happy with each other. Longing to be sisters. Thank you. Hi, I'm Gail Waldstein, and I'm lucky to be back at Thornton for a second year. Um, I had Jalen Montoya, and um, he's a young man that's interested in athletics, especially wrestling, and enjoys writing. He started um, to be published in sixth grade with a haiku, and he's, he likes a whole ton of um, artists, music, musicians that I basically don't know except Eminem. Uh, <laughs> and he's an interested and very connected student. He was really fun to teach because he volunteered in class and um, as is unusual for a sophomore, he can actually think on his feet. So I give you Jalen Montoya. Hey guys, my name is Jalen, and I'll be reading my poem, Dream. A dream is a place to hide. A dream is a place to make your own. A dream is the people you never fought. A dream is a sad thing. A dream is what you want, but can't have. A dream is the road you'll never walk. A dream is the tree you never saved. A tree is a person you never saved. That road is the road you walk away from. And greed is wanting more, what you want, don't deserve. The sad is what you never face. People, the ones you wish you fought. Your dream is an ability to create. Your dream is a place to hide from your fears. My dream is this writing that becomes reality. And your faith in me will help my dream become that reality. My dream is now your dream to share for me. Our dream is now reality. And I also had the good luck to have um, Daniel Roy, who's a senior at Thornton High. And um, Daniel said, uh, sent me a little bio saying that he was telling stories to his mother when he was three and four years old and made her write them down and staple them together in books. And, <laughs> and he writes about what he likes, and he... Uh, plans to be a commercial pilot, so you will get some awesome uh, words about Vietnam and um, fighter pilots. Daniel?
Heaven Can Wait, South Vietnam, February 1968. Warrant Officer Second Class Murray was having a bad day. His windshield was pierced in several places by bullets that barely bored boring through his head. It seemed like everyone on the ground was trying to kill him, which really wasn't that much off the mark. All the people down in the jungle below were North Vietnamese soldiers, NVA, the only friendlies in the world in the bay in the Hueys the Hue Slicks. His gunship were escorting to the gun landing zone, named, co-named Landing Zone Hotel. Murray was the pilot in command of a shark-mouthed UH-1C Huey gunship. At his disposal was a 40mm grenade launcher in the nose, two rocket pods with 19 rockets each. His favorite, though, were the two fixed miniguns, capable of spitting lead at over 6,000 rounds a minute. All this was accompanied by the two mounted door manually mounted operated M60 machine guns operated by Buzz and Cosmos, his crew chief and gunner. Lincoln, a huge African-American who used to be a wrestler, sat in the left seat. He was, his, he was Murray's faithful co-pilot. Foxtrot 2-2, this is Able 1-4, marked the collection of bunkers at the south end of the hotel. Can you spot yellow? Murray's radio crackled. I got it, Lincoln extended his left arm out, out to the left. Roger that, Able 1-4. We see yellow smoke. Murray sp- spoke into the headset, catching a brief glimpse of the little Cessna bird dog that he was laying him instructions. Come from the west and load some rockets in an area extending 500 yards on either side of the smoke. Do you copy? Roger Abel, we're inbound, Murray said. Foxtrot 2325, don't get in too tight, and when you come in on the run, make sure your guns are not pointing at me when you open up. If I die from friendly fire, I'm haunting their asses. Cosmos held the right hand, M60 firmly, and was trying to aim at the target area as the gunship came out of a tight left-hand turn. Anything that moves the target, we've got no friendlies on the ground, okay? Murray said in the intercom, emphasizing his point. Got it, Cosmos and Buzz replied simultaneously. I'm flying and I got rockets. You worry about the grenades and the miniguns. No problem, Lincoln said. Can't wait to get the party started. Almost on cue came a sound of gravel or rocks hitting a metal garbage can. Neither can Charlie, Murray said. They ain't got nothing we can't handle. Sometimes it buried Murray that Lincoln was always so upbeat and ready to go. It was bad enough the Huey gunship had taken damage just arriving at the landing zone, but now the enemy really let Murray know just how much they didn't like him. Traces ripping off from the jungle canopy as Murray launched rockets in the area marked by rising yellow smoke. Every fifth round of ammo was a tracer. The gun spats fire so fast it looked like one solid yellow stream, exiting the guns arcing into the jungle below. Cousins of Buzz let loose their M60s upon anything and everything they thought were worthwhile. The other two Huey gunships did exactly the same thing. Murray's always believed the reason they were always drew so much return fire was not the fact they were so good at destroying enemy soldiers. No, it was a graphic painting of a grim reaper about to swing his scythe at the hapless, dumb-looking, pajama-clad Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the North Vietnamese that was painted on the right side of the Huey, and enraged the enemy gunners so much that they always made sure his gunship was their priority to shoot down. It was only reinforced when he heard rumors spreading about how any soldier shot down his gunship, which they had nicknamed the Hellbound, would receive a week off in frontline Dewey. And Mary was thinking that a lot of them really wanted a vacation badly. In the tall elephant grass stood a North Vietnamese soldier, a trained, disciplined fighter who would lose no sleep over destroying the Hellbound, and Murray with it. The enemy soldier wore no shirt, cockeye pants, a belt of brass bullets wrapped around his chest, and a customary pith helmet with a yellow star. But the most menacing feature was the rocket-propelled grenade launcher sling over his right shoulder. 
The man wasted little time taking aim, pointing almost directly at Murray's heart. Lincoln, Bud, and the Cosmos were just yards away from the Hellbound's door, but it seemed like miles. Murray's life didn't flash before his eyes. It was just a numb, cold sensation that filled every vein of his mortal soul. It was all over. It was a fact he was most certain of. Murray's heart started beating again only after a massive roaring sound slammed him back into reality. The trees on either side of the communist exploded, shrapnel filling the air. The RPG fell to the ground, unfired, in the brief moment the soldier had hesitated. Then common sense took over. The man went down to the ground and escaped, swallowed up by elephant grass at least four feet high. Only then Murray realized he was squeezing a gun tilt on his stick. He had fired the Huey's miniguns and had saved his life. Lincoln ran into the, the um, helicopter and slammed his fist in Murray's left shoulder. Get us out now! Okay, our next reader is Arrow Marquez. And Arrow um, is part of our 10-week radio program at a school called Arupe Jesuit High School. Um, We work with a bunch of public radio reporters there to record students' true stories. Um, And his should be airing probably in the next month or so on public radio stations. So we'll we'll keep you updated. Um, But Arupe is a really interesting school that... um, The model is that the students have to pay their own tuition there by working um, one day a week for one of the corporate job partners that that is paired up with the school. Uh, So all of the students there just have an amazing amount of dedication and maturity. Uh, Arrow is certainly no exception. He shows the same dedication to the group um, that we're working in. There's five other students. And... um, He's, he's done a lot of work at home, recording, interviewing, um, and, and his writing has this rhythm to it. His subject is music, um, and his, his writing and his voice are very musical, and he has inspired me to listen more um, by working with him on this piece. So, Arrow, I don't know where he is. There he is. Okay. I'm part of a dying species, known as the drummer. In today's world, the drummers are pushed to the back. We are the invisible kid. You'll notice that there's no video game called Drum Hero. (laughs) Nope, everybody wants to be in the limelight as a singer or a guitar hero. But when I was a kid, I listened to a lot of hip-hop and rap songs and always loved the boom of the bass and the switching of the rhythms. I guess you could say that's where my drumming path began. I started getting into drums around the time I was 12. My parents bought me the rock band video game, and the drums were the only thing I was good at. Around the same time, I was introduced to something that would flip my world upside down, the great rush of punk rock and heavy metal that was streaming the airwaves. I heard bands like Rise Against and Asking Alexandria. These bands had a quick pace and a fast double bass sound to them that made my heart beat equally as fast. This became my anthem for expressing myself in a way I'm sure we all have as teenagers, to rebel and be my own person. I wanted more of it. I wanted to explore the unknown regions of rock music. After I, be- after I had been playing rock band for about a year, I told my dad, I think this is something I can do and would be good at. So we looked around. Drum sets, brand new. They ranged from 
$500 to $10,000. We unexpectedly found a drum set in a pawn shop on a cold October day. The price tag read $170. It was broken down and very out of tune and needed a lot of work to be done on it. It was a five-piece CB drum set. The black paint was faded and slightly warped. The snare drum had a hole in it and the cymbals were like flattened tin cans. We started working on it immediately, going to various stores and upgrading the set piece by piece in my room. We repaired the drums and polished them to a shine. We got a new snare drum, we replaced the worn-out bass pedal for a double bass, and we replaced the cymbals with respected Zildjian cymbals. I began playing immediately, but it wasn't as easy as Rock Band made it seemed. I dropped the... St- <laughs> I dropped the sticks countless times and would always drop the rhythm, but I was able to get the hang of it after some practice. To feel the drumsticks in my hand and smell the wood and metal that made the drum set what it is, and hear the ringing of the cymbals, the boom of the bass drum, and the pop of the snare. Playing brought the feeling that my mind separated my body into four parts, each arm and each leg with a specific job. My dad, being a natural musician himself, he'd often play along with me on, on the guitar. I would complain about my modern music style. <laughs> so I asked what style of music he used to play. He said he often looked up to the legendary larger-than-life bands of Van Halen and Kiss. And so I added a new generation of music to my memory. We began playing songs by these bands, and to my surprise, I caught on very quickly. Maybe I inherited this style of music genetically from my dad. <laughs> Around the same time, I also bought the video game Fallout 3. It's set in the 1930s and has great music from that time. My favorite song in the game was I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots. The Ink Spots were a catalyst to me because I remember, I always remember hearing Dean Martin playing in my grandparents' car, and my dad would always be singing his Frank Sinatra while driving. I never paid much interest until I heard the Ink Spots. The smooth beats and the vocal harmonies seemed to open a new artery in my heart, which had been locked off before. I was able to see how my angst-filled and rebellious ways, which were brought from the punk metal times, has been soothed and calmed by the rich vocals of the 1930s. Again, I wanted more, and later discovered and started playing the music of the Andrews Sisters and Ella Fitzgerald, slowing down the tempo and counting one, two, three. One, two, three. Now at 16 years old, I can proudly say that I can play almost any style of music on the drums, as my never-ending of... As my never-ending library of genres has expanded, I have seen that all I do in my spare time is play, whether it be with my dad or with my band. Every moment of my spare time is filled with drums and music. I'm J. Diego Fry, and um, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to take a moment to boast. Um, I think uh, a quality uh, of a school can be very well uh, exemplified by the quality of the school students. And um, I, the students you're, read, you're hearing tonight are uh, exceptional, but they're by no means exceptions. Um, Every student I've met in my uh, brief and happy tenure teaching uh, for Lighthouse has been a, a terrific writer and uh, 
an interesting soul. And uh, I, I want to give props to the school for uh, collecting these wonderful specimens. Um, one of the great joys of teaching classes here at Lighthouse is that uh, the, when you arrive at the class and the students assemble and you're all sitting around the table, these are, these are uh, people who uh, are here because they want to be. They're here because they want to participate in this activity. And um, they're uh, interested and willing and uh, ready to take on any challenge you offer them. And I think uh, the student that uh, uh, we're going to introduce tonight is a, is a great example of that. Um, I turn that over to my co-teacher. I'm Melinda, and the best decision I made last fall was when J.D. Um, emailed me at the spur of the moment and asked if I wanted to co-teach, and I said, yes. So um, we're introducing Eva Wenham, and she's one of those energetic kids who takes on many, many things and does well at all of them. She's played the guitar since she was six and practices with a band. She's on a swim team, and she snowboards. Um, she's an eighth grader at the Denver School of the Arts, where she's focusing on the visual arts, but we found that she has a gift for words, whether or not she's writing about snow or plastic shoes. So, Eva Wenham. So, I have three poems, and the first one is Snow. Coming into the night, cheating away the moon's reflection, giving the streetlight something to shine on, an exfoliating exuberance expands, flaking out from pallid clouds in icy crystals. Wood floors of snow sneak into the dead grasses, stealing the warmth from underneath your doors. plastic shoes. Your feet, bound in black, pampered daily, smooth as glass, you complain about the skin that protects you, never soft enough, always another callus to smooth away, nails painted another color, your feet have seen rainbows but can't climb mountains, the smooth sand now feels like wood chips, Pampered plastic growing thinner as your feet sit dying in a tub of warm water. Ruining your shoes is what worries you most. Your body is a host for a Barbie. You are slowly becoming one, starting with your feet. And then November evening. Fiery silhouettes alight upon purple-tinged clouds, sudden bursts of fire as day sinks slowly into an early night. Pieces of sun are left in colored leaves that litter the ground and cling lightly to trees. Branches reach like hungry hands into a pastel sky. Dim noises of the street dispense headaches. Mountains play hide-and-seek between skyscrapers. And inside the foreboding shadows of houses, the nightly routine begins in the harsh light that doesn't let us see the stars. As the fiery silhouettes that just painted each individual cloud turn 
into the ash that each is when not lit by the sudden bursts of fire. My name is Michael Kilduff, and I teach at Thornton High School, and three of our kids are here tonight, one of whom is my daughter, and, uh, uh, but she goes to the Denver School of the Arts, let me clarify that, sure, I've got four kids here, I guess, and uh, I guess about four or five years ago, Alice was uh, wondering what she was going to do with her summer, and uh, a faculty member at my school said, um, have you thought about Lighthouse, they do writing instruction, and we called them, and they were full. So that was no good, but <laughs> very inconsiderate. But in the fall, um, we managed to enroll Alice in a course, and uh, she's been here ever since. Um, she did uh, Sunday afternoon courses um, for a couple of years, and she found her voice. She found her voice as, um, as a writer and as a thinker, and uh, she applied to the Denver School of the Arts. She's a creative writer there now. And... Um, uh, Lighthouse matters to her. It has mattered uh, very much to her. She's in teen council now, and, um, and her experience has been wonderful. Um, last summer, she went to the University of Iowa to a writer's camp, which was exciting for us because the University of Iowa has a very well-known writer's program. And uh, when I picked her up, I said, you know, how was it? And she said, it was wonderful. And I said, so you've learned a lot as a writer. She said, no, after, after the RAs disappeared, we all got up in the corridor and shared snacks and stayed up really late. Um, I, I said, well, what about the writing? And she said, oh, Lighthouse is much better. Um, We decided uh, in our department, uh, given our experiences, that we wanted Lighthouse to come in and do um, outreach. And we began that a couple of years ago. And for the last year and a half, we've had uh, Gail Wallstein coming in. She, um, uh, she's taught in, in, in a class, in regularly scheduled classes this year. And uh, I think you, you hear in the work of the students what um, wonderful stuff that they have done and how terrific she has been. Um, our student Sam, who's going to read for you in a moment, um, is State Poetry Out Loud champion. Um, I love the idea that my school is state champion at poetry. Um, we have a banner and everything. Um, but, but Sam came as part of his uh, prize. He came to Lighthouse and found his voice as a writer, discovering his world, discovering himself. And interestingly, the thing that brought the house down at um, fall, um, what do we call it, pep assembly, that's right, thank you, a fall pep assembly was Sam reading his poetry. Hard to imagine, but that's exactly what happened. In terms of, you know, where we're going as a school, our school is going all IB. Um, the chase after standards, I think we all understand it. The interesting thing about IB is that it doesn't have um, a creative writing course. Uh, in fact, in the diploma program, there was only one option for creative writing, and IB has written that out of its program in the new revision, which is very interesting to me. Um, that happens elsewhere. We know in music and art, but it's true in creative writing too. So it's really important to me that we keep our relationship with Lighthouse. 
Um, they've done wonderful work, and I am very grateful for what they did. Thank you. Michael stole a lot of things I was going to say about Sam and Alice. So um, I will just cut to the chase. Um, and Sam's voice speaks for itself, so I'm actually not going to say much except for that um, Sam just has this this s- simple way of writing with big beauty and a real palpable sense of spirit. And you'll hear it, and you'll see it on the page, um, and it's been really cool to have both you and Alice here the last two years, and we can't wait to see one of you win Poetry Out Loud this year. I know you're both doing it, so Sam, thank you. Hello, guys. Okay, um, this is a song about a river. In Africa, the air is dense. The water runs carefree, and the sun shines a deep shade of yellow. When I say yellow, I mean yellow. Not the pale kind of yellow that we see here in America, but it is a harvested yellow. It is a sun that absorbs the struggle of my people in its core. Then when we need it most, returns it to us in each and every one of its magnificent rays. Ours is a sun that laughs. When the rain comes, the people dance. It is not planned or forced, it is nature. Like eating or drinking, it comes easy. The thunder and lightning, just two solos in a stormy chorus. The raindrops fall like planets the size of marbles, and when Jupiter hits you and Venus touches you and Saturn's rings dangle on your ears until finally dropping and sliding down, your temple to your chin. There is nothing else to do but dance in your your own little world. But I tell you this, you haven't danced until you've danced in the warm African rain on a humid July night. This is where I come from. I am Samuel Ajarko Poku Kofi, born of the Ashanti tribe in Ghana, West Africa. I know my name sounds so glorious and full of pride, but I didn't always view it as so. There's an old African proverb that glows like this. The man who lives by the river will not use spit to wash his hands. In Africa, names are almost as important as values. Samuel was a prophet in the Bible who was ordained by God to anoint the first king of Israel, the great David. The fact that I wasn't named David used to warn me in those days. My superhero, my superhero attitude and courageous characteristics didn't quite seem to match the simplicity and dullness of the name Samuel. I want to be king, I thought. Why am I the hum- humble fellow who gets the so-called privilege of naming the king? When these questions were brought to my mother's attention, she sat me down and looked into my eyes as though they were a puzzle she had to solve. Her scent was that of the kitchen, but her aura was a deep love. When your dad and I, she would start, had Gifty, my oldest sister, we were thrilled. Then we had Esther, and we couldn't be happier. Her voice became softer now, a whisper that forced me to lean forward in order to catch her every word. 
Her light brown eyes seemed to glisten with a glow that would make even the stars blush with envy. Your father always wanted a son, and because I love him, I want what he wants. Every day I would go to my room and cry to God to bring you to me. In the Bible, Samuel's mother prays, prayed for him, and God answered her prayers and gave him a beautiful baby boy. On the word beautiful, she would playfully lick, flick my nose. <laughs> this is why I named you Samuel, she concluded with a tilt of the head. Then she'd stand up and give me that all-knowing smile, that trust me because I know what I'm doing smile, that this is where you belong smile, that this is who you are and don't you ever forget it smile, that you are loved smile. Now, would you rather be chosen halfway through your life to be a king or chosen even before you're born to lead a king? With my eyes turned away from the shadows of resentment into the sweet sunlight of a new perspective, I got up, hugged her, and excitingly ran back into the hot sun to play with my friends. It is hard to see what treasure lies beneath the ocean when we are, when we are standing with arms folded and lips pouted on the boat. We have to dive in. Only the blind wash their hands with spit when they are standing next to a river. Whatever the difficulty that, you, that keeps you from seeing a river, it is not worth it. Your hands are meant to be washed, just like I am meant to lead, just like my people are meant to dance. That's it. Um, thank you again for coming, everybody. And thanks again to the young writers. Maybe one more round of applause for all of them. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.